ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, now to the forests of Uganda. Yes, they, they don't sound majestic, but of course, mountain gorillas are an extraordinary sight to behold, to which I can attest. And they're surviving in Uganda, partly due to the work of that country's first wildlife vet, a role that our next guest had to create for herself back in the 1990s in order to change the country's conservation landscape. When Dr Gladys Kalema Zikusoka began her role... The now-famous mountain gorillas were critically endangered, with only 300 individuals left in the forest. Now her work includes the Bawindi Impenetrable Forest National Park. It sits on the edge of Uganda's Rift Valley, and it protects about half the world's now more resilient gorilla population. In her memoir, Walking with Gorillas, she details her quest to protect the animals through improving the health of surrounding villages. She's received an honorary degree from the Royal Veterinary College of the University of London for this work, and she joins me now. Dr Gladys, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me, Geraldine. Now, look, your life story is a challenge, um, personally, but also in terms of what you set yourself with the gorillas. So let's go back to 1996. You just started in your new role. What was the attitude towards conservation back then in Uganda? Um, the attitude towards conservation back then was that animals shouldn't be touched. Um, they should be just be left to natural selection. And so when I came in as the first veterinarian for the Uganda Wildlife Authority, um, which is a government agency, uh, people looked at me rather strangely when I said we have to treat the animals. Um, the argument was the warthog is the next meal for the lion. You know, the limping warthog is the next meal for the lion. When two gorillas fight it's time for a new one to take over the group. And so I was looked at rather strangely. So it was a very traditional approach to, you know, the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. It was all about only survival for the fittest. Mm. But because a lot of the animals are threatened by humans, especially the gorillas that were only down to 300 in wind impenetrable forest at the time, um, it was really necessary to do something because gorillas are threatened by human disease. Um, we're closely related and we can easily make each other sick. We share over 98% genetic material, 984 to be precise. And they're also threatened by habitat loss because their forest is quite small and there's a high human population growth rate around it. So there's a hard edge around the forest. And also poaching for other animals in the forest and they accidentally get caught in snares or get speared. So really you couldn't just leave them to natural selection. No, look, I mean, I know about the poaching and and I I didn't realise, to be candid, that we were such a risk to gorillas. I thought they were a risk to us, although, you know, you can debate that. But there's a mutual risk, isn't there? Yes, there is a mutual risk. Um, We can... We, we, one of the first cases I had to deal with was a skin disease in the mountain gorillas. They told me that they're losing hair and developing white scaly skin. 
And that really seemed to me to be scabies. So I spoke to a human doctor friend of mine before I traveled up to Bwindi. And I asked her, what is the most common skin disease in people? And she said, scabies, sarcoptic mange, which I found really strange because I did my education, my veterinary education in the UK at the Royal Vet College, University of London. And he, at, in RVC, we, people never got scabies. Sometimes they occasionally get it from their pets. And, but luckily, I just went with a drug that could treat scabies, which is ivermectin. And I went, I happened to have three senior vets from other countries who happened to be there. Two of them were tourists. And one of them had come to help us with vet needs for the country. So Dr. Richard Koch had seen mange in cheetahs in Masai Mara, but there were those visited by many tourists, two mm. vehicles. So when we went up and it did look like scabies, we, you know, we took samples from one of them who was scratching even under the effects of the anesthetic because he was so itchy. We were able to treat all of them with ivermectin. Unfortunately, we lost a baby. But at that, that point, we started to wonder where did it come from? And it turned out that low-income groups of people in Uganda have scabies and this gorilla group was spending a lot of their time outside the park. So wow. they probably came across dirty clothing on a scarecrow that someone hadn't bathed or had put a dirty clothing full of mites. And that's how they got it. Goodness but me. But it was a big eye-opener because I realised you couldn't really keep the gorillas healthy without improving the health of their human neighbours. And what do the villagers say about this? I mean, are they do they appreciate what you're doing? Yes, they do because actually they had very poor, they had very little health care. They had very limited access to good health care. And so when we met with them and told them what the problem was, they told us that, they wanted health services to be brought closer to them. I didn't realize they were so far away from the nearest health center, like 20 miles away. And if someone fell sick, they had to carry them on a stretcher to the health center. They also told me that they'd like to continue to have this health education. And they wanted us to strengthen the gorilla, human and gorilla conflict resolution team that had gorillas back when they come out. And so with all these measures, we actually used a lot of that stuff the new NGO conservation through public health. But one thing I realized that by improving people's health, you make them think that you don't only care about the wild animals and the forest, but you also care about them. And because healthcare is a basic human right. And so it made them more willing to protect the wildlife and pro and have and support conservation. And have you had success? Do the figures support that? Um, yes, they do. We've found that as People are falling sick less often. Gorillas are falling sick less often, which is something that is very, very exciting. But also we're finding that people are more willing to protect the gorillas. Um, if the gorillas come into their garden, they're more willing to protect them. Remember when an, the elderly silverback of the first group that was habituated for tourism, the Mubari group, his name was Ruhendeza. He, he was called Ruhendeza because he liked sleeping a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but when he got so old and he couldn't keep up with the group, which is, that's what happens because they move at least a kilometer a day. Um, he decided to settle on community land. And so the Wildlife Authority called me as conservation through public health. They called us and said, can you, maybe translocate this gorilla back into the forest. But when we got there, we found that he was so happily settled in the community land. And in fact, it was a community who showed us where he was. Oh. And he did, you could tell that if we took him back, he would come out the next day because he, he, there he didn't have to compete for resources. So they were, they, we educated them. We told them about him. 
and they were happy. They were okay with him occasionally taking some food, you know, some banana plants. And because they said, even when our elders get old, we look after them. And so when uh, Ruhendeza died, the volunteers who we train, the village health and conservation teams, to spread good health and hygiene and good conservation attitudes and practices, they talked to their local community members and everybody tolerated Ruhendeza. So when he died, they actually all came to pay their last respects and showed me how far conservation has gone. My goodness. The communities really see that's quite the gorillas a, as their future. That's quite a story. <laughs> I think listeners will be stunned because they would have assumed that the gorillas were a long way away from humans. <laughs> actually, Windy, they are always mixing with humans because of the very hard edge between the community and the park. So the best way to do it is to teach people to coexist. But another threat, of course, is uh, tourism. Um, where tourists can bring uh, a fatal flu such as COVID-19. So during the pandemic, we advocated to the government that everybody should wear masks when they come close to the gorillas, whether it's the park staff, the tourists, the local community members when they go outside the park. And that really worked. And so, you know, the gorillas did not pick up covid from people. Now, Dr. Gladys, I just have to, uh, apart from hearing that, your own personal story um, is really quite something. You sort of stumbled, in a sense, into this role. You, you nominated it of wildlife <laughs> vet. But you had an amazing upbringing with your mother and father, which clearly has played a role in what you bring to bear for, um, for your country. Can you just summarise that for us, please, the story of your mother and father? I've been very inspired by my parents. Um, I was the last born in a family of six and grew up with lots of pets at home. But my elder brother used to like bringing stray cats and dogs home and I fell in love with them and decided I wanted to be a vet when I turned 12. But when I was two years old, tragically, my father was abducted. He was a senior cabinet minister in the previous government. This is in the era of Idi Amin, isn't it? Yes, Mm. yes. In the, in the previous government after independence. And so when Idi Amin came into power, when I, he, when I was turned one years old, Idi Amin came into power and my dad was one of the very first victims, people who he abducted and killed. So I don't actually remember my dad, but when I was old enough to understand, they explained to me that he was a you know, prominent person and he was tragically killed by Idi Amin and he really wanted to develop the country and had made significant progress. And so I I always felt in me that I wanted to continue his legacy. My mom did. She joined politics when Idi Amin was outstead and President Museveni came into power. She joined politics and she was one of the first female politicians in the country and encouraged many women to join politics. And she was jailed three Uh, times, wasn't she? She was arrested three times and once jailed for her politics. She was a very respected woman. Yes, she was arrested and jailed and she went through a lot. She really did. And I felt that I wanted to continue their legacy, um, especially my dad, whose life was cut short when he was only in his 40s, um, by developing my country through my passion for animals and for wildlife. And when I went to Queen Elizabeth National Park after reviving the Wildlife Club at high school and saw that there was very little wildlife, a lot of it was disappeared during the Idi Amin era and also when the army was ousting Idi Amin, I thought that why don't I become a vet who can bring Uganda's wildlife back to its former glory? And so 
I wrote to the executive director of the national parks after I had done a research study at Windy Impenetrable National Park as a vet student. And I said to him, you need a vet and this is what a vet does. And I was very excited when he accepted my request to become the first wildlife vet in Uganda. And you set up, also you set up a gorilla conservation coffee, uh, I I gather, to, in order to raise money regularly for conservation projects. And and you have been quite successful there too, haven't you? Yes. um, Gorilla conservation coffee came about um, actually as an idea from my husband. He's a co-founder of conservation through public health and when we, whenever you're going to check on the gorillas, you often cross coffee farms, but these farmers were not getting a steady market or a fair price, and they were still entering the forest to poach. So once I discovered that, my husband was like, why don't we create a global coffee brand to save the gorillas um, through coffee? And so what we do is we found out that that coffee was actually very good quality because it's a high altitude. The gorillas live in the mountains. That's why they're called mountain gorillas. And... It's actually one, it was among the top 30 coffees reviewed by Coffee Review in 2018. And so we teach them to grow good coffee, give them a good price for good coffee, for premium or specialty coffee. And a donation goes back to continuing to support the work of conservation through public health, to prove community health, guerrilla health and conservation education. And so right currently we're engaging 500 farmers. We started off with 75, we're engaging 500. And the coffee is not only so to the tourists who come to Uganda or anybody else who's interested in drinking coffee, like the expatriate community and the growing number of coffee-drinking Ugandans, but the coffee is also goes abroad. What's, what's, its biggest, name? what's its name, please? It's called Gorilla Conservation Coffee. Right, it's called... Okay. And the first, our first brand is called Kanyonyi brand, after my favourite gorilla, called Kanyonyi, right. <laughs> <laughs> who I've known since he was little. I mean, he was born when I started out as a fast vet for the Uganda Wildlife Authority. So it's also sold in Australia. Is it? Through um, a group called Hilda. Um, It's sold in New Zealand and Australia and UK and US. UK in many rooms and the US as well. This year we celebrate 20 years of conservation through public health, which is very exciting. Um, We're still around and more and more people are understanding why we're doing what we're doing. And the pandemic made people understand it even more. Right. You know, because diseases can jump back and forth between people and animals. And we'll continue and so to do so. <laughs> I realized also that we had to spend a lot of time educating the donors. The government actually bought into it quicker because they could see it. They're on the ground. Now more and more donors are beginning to realize that this is the One Health approach. Um, addressing things holistically using a multidisciplinary approach is more cost effective. Well, look, good luck. More power to your arm. Thank you very much indeed. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show, Geraldine. That was Gladys, uh, Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka, Uganda's first wildlife vet and founder of the organisation Conservation Through Public Health. And her memoir is called Walking with Gorillas, The Journey of an African Wildlife Vet. Look, we can't easily see how it's distributed, but I certainly found it. So you might uh, like to look it up on the web as well. And thank you for your text, people who've been to um, see uh, the gorillas as I had in Rwanda. One man saying that he tried to take photos and um, the, the flashes didn't work very well, or it 
it wasn't advisable. It certainly wouldn't have been. We were advised very strongly not to look the gorillas in the eye and to, in fact, perfect a certain grunt sound if they came too close to you. And that indicated friendliness. Um, and that you, you, you discover very fast how to do it when suddenly this huge, huge animal looms up and you're not quite ready for it. But it is a wondrous thing to, um, wondrous thing to behold. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.